We're all aware of a story of a prodigal father, that is a father who has a prodigal son that goes out to the end of the road and looks for his son every day. What the story doesn't tell you is what I've experienced over 38 years with a score of families. Yes, they not only go out to the end of the road and they look, whatever that end of the road may look like, but they, they don't just go out there and look, they question, they wrestle with things. Sometimes when they're out there at the end of that road and wrestling with God, is my son ever going to come home? They will wrestle with questions like, God, did we do something wrong? Lord, uh, was I too strict? Uh, Did I force them to go to church and I shouldn't have? And there's all kinds of questions and, and sometimes helpfully and sometimes not so helpful. There's all kinds of suggestions from the body of Christ. And as we struggle through that, those become really challenging days. That's not a short trial we get through. Sometimes it's 15 and 20 and 25 years. And we, we ache through those. It, it's much like a, a number in our church um, have migraines. I, I get periodic migraines, very, very infrequent. When I get them, I usually end up in the hospital. So um, I kind of like the hospital. But um, there's some, uh, unlike me, who infrequently has them. Mine are triggered by a couple things. But there are some in our church that have them every week. And, and they're debilitating. They're the kind that put you in your bedroom and turn the lights out and alter your schedule. And you, you, you have to literally create a life around managing these things. And one of the challenges that occurs during that is we have hope through prayer and other people and God's going to hear your prayers and that hope arises. But we also know the proverb that says hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so sometimes we maybe decide to not go out to the end of the road. And sometimes we may, as I was interacting with someone in the recent past, they had chronic pain. And that chronic pain led to medicinal practices that led to addictions that ultimately led to a divorce. It started off back here with a prayer, God, would you heal us? Would you heal this headache? Would you heal this trauma to my brain? It ended in a tragic, torpedoed divorce and an addiction that continues to this day. One of the challenges that faces us, all of us, and it faced David in this psalm, is how do we find hope and redemptive living and lifestyle and response when we are in a challenge that's not short and it endures for a long time. We don't know what it is for David. It doesn't tell us. We don't know the backdrop of 39 like we know the backdrop of 38. What we do know is is that David, like a person fighting a migraine, not for a weekend, not for a week, but month after month after month, or a father or a mother that goes out every day and deals with a heartache and sometimes the accusations of the enemy and maybe even tragically the body of Christ. And this heartache and this challenge that we face, we wonder at the end of the day, God, are we going to endure and how do we find hope and how How do we find a hope that doesn't disappoint? And as the scripture says, makes our heart sick. Is there hope for those who wait when God has allowed 
deep challenges, sometimes painful challenges into our life. And David tells us there is hope. I guarantee you there is hope. But here's the challenge. There is also a temptation. And that's where he begins. There is a temptation that comes with great challenges that solicit oftentimes an impulsive reaction rather than a reasoned response. And when I say impulsive, I'm not talking about something that's just overnight. I'm talking about the person. And, and we have some in our church and, and they are dear friends. They have struggled. We have the prodigal parents. We have those who have lived with this pain over a long time. So it's not impulsive like it just happened overnight. But it's a, it's a reaction, and David gives us two of them in particular. And the first one, I would just label it called the, the reaction of impulsive accusation. And David actually begins by saying, God, I haven't chosen this one. I said, I will watch my ways and I will keep my tongue from sin. And I'm going to put a muzzle on my mouth as long as the wicked are in my presence. In other words, God, David knows there's a fine line between being honest with God and accusing God. There's a really fine line between being an individual who like Asaph and, and other psalmists um, and, or Jeremiah who come and, and share their honest heart with God. But it's very easy to slip over and David realizes that. And so he said, God, I've muzzled myself. I have not given myself permission to accuse you. I've not given my permission to uncork on you. But we still ask the question, God, why am I suffering? Why am I here and others aren't? And what the prodigal story doesn't tell you, but I know that it happens because I've just went there with people. It's very easy to compare. It's like, you know, God, we raised our kids in the church. We brought them to church all the time. We faithfully served with, in the church. We prayed and our kids are walked away from you. And I know other friends that went to church and God, they went to church only when they didn't have anything else to do. They didn't make it a priority. They didn't tithe. And they've got two kids who are missionaries. What's up with that? And we, we tend to look at how we raised our kids and others and we look at this and we can come to the point where, Lord, it's like, no, you, you didn't hold up your end of the deal. But David says, I, I didn't go there. But what he did do is what I call the reaction of forced silence. When I was silent and still, not even saying anything good, in other words, he took this silence really seriously. I, th I think you do that when you don't trust yourself. Lord, I'm not going to say anything bad, but I'm not going to say anything good. I am just taking a code of silence. The code of silence doesn't stop there. Because he goes on and he goes, my anguish increased and my heart grew hot within me. And as I meditated, the fire burned. And then I spoke. Forced silence is the person who's not being honest, most honestly with themselves. It sometimes looks noble. It looks like obedience. It might even look like faith. But what's happening, as David says, I'm suppressing my anguish. I'm suppressing the unfairness. I'm suppressing my frustration with God. And it's just like an ulcer in the soul of my gut. It's burning a hole. 
When I grew up, I was mindful of uh, a family and I've seen it more than a few times. One of the children in these families kind of tends to kind of be the rebellious type. You know, if the family says up, they say down. If the family says left, they say right. And they're kind of always pushing the envelope. And this one I was aware of, um, it just she had a fight in her. Oh, man, I'm telling you what. She fought, and it was like cats and dogs there sometimes between mom and her. And you always wonder to say, man, how is this young lady going to turn out? On the other hand, was another child, and very compliant, obedient, wonderful. Just, I mean, it's like, you know, perfect child. And I always kind of thought, well, it's like, you know, God, it's kind of nice that they get this one because that one's just really put them on the mat. I mean, they pray because of her. The danger of this one is you might not pray. All you can just say, God, thank you so much for our daughter. As as it unfolds, often type, this one, she, she surrendered her fight to the Lord. And to this day, she's a warrior. She is an incredible servant of God. The other one reminded me of David. There was a hole that was being burned in her soul. And what came out as compliance and obedience was really suppression and anger. And one day it got the best of her. And in contrast to what we all thought was this beautiful life of obedience, fired into this reckless rebellion. Sometimes people are that way in the body of Christ. They haven't been honest with themselves. Maybe they haven't been honest with their friends. They, they haven't been honest about the struggle. They haven't been honest about the migraines. They haven't been honest. And, it's, and, and they don't know what to do with it, candidly. They don't know what to do with a God who heals and, and, and doesn't heal them. They don't know what to do with a God who raises up missionaries in mediocre families and turns up hellions in God-honoring families. They don't know what to do with that stuff. It doesn't make sense. And so instead of processing that well with the Lord, as David teaches us how to do, they have this impulsive reaction and comes out of it this burned up soul inside as David describes it. I have been filled with fire and I am being burned from the inside out. Is there hope for that kind of person? Is there hope for the angry prodigal father who's just angry that their son isn't walking with God and angry at others in the church that their kids are when they were raised in homes that didn't honor Christ the way he did? Is there hope for the person who wakes up every day and determines whether or not they can even go outside the house based upon whether or not their head allows them? There is. But it begins not with victory. It begins with humility. Because the challenge that we face requires humility. You'll you'll never get to the point of hope and a deep challenge through your own discipline. David comes to us and he says in verse 4, God, show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. 
You've made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is nothing before you. Each man's life is just but a breath. God, men are like shadows. They're phantoms. They're here and then day to tomorrow. They can be busy. But the reality is all of their wealth is not worth a dime when they die. It gives five cents on the dollar. David says the, re, the, the reality is if you want to find hope, it's going to begin through the path of humility. And interestingly enough, he says, the first thing you need to do is ask God for, for the perspective on the shortness of your life. Now, why is that helpful? Well, it's helpful because one of the problems that we get into in these challenges is we get a spirit of arrogance and it's a spirit of demanding us and it's the spirit of telling God, hey, this is not fair. You're not treating me well. And, and what David is suggesting is, is that the path you need to take is the path of humility. And the way you take that path is that you ask God to take a good look at your life. And you come to the conclusion that everything that we're about in this life is really, really short compared to eternity. What happens when you get that perspective? I, as I recently shared on a midweek, I, I thoroughly enjoy, it sounds a little weird, but I do. I thoroughly enjoy walking people through the process of a funeral, through death. There's many reasons why I enjoy it, but one of them is because death forces everyone's hand. It does. I've seen around gravesides families reconciled that hadn't spoken to each other in 20 years. I've seen people as they come together in viewings bury the hatchet. I've heard people when they're confronted with death and they see the reality of death deal with their own mortality. That's what David is suggesting. God, teach me to number my days. Teach me about the brevity of my life. Why? Because when I get it, the life is really short. I will more incline myself to things that really matter. I could take you down so many illustrations, but one of them in particular is this one gentleman is restoring his relationship with his brother. And he said, 20 years ago, we quit speaking to each other. It's time to bury the hatchet. Where did that occur? Around a grave. When they looked in on mom and mom's death caused them to have this sense of sobriety about their life. Get over yourself. 20 years ago, your brother dated your girlfriend behind your back. God forbid. You're both married now and doing quite fine. And your pride is still living 20 years ago. But that day, around that grave, they decided we need perspective. I cannot tell you how many times that's happened. Death does that. I can't tell you how many times people come to a funeral, dad has died, grandpa has died, and all of a sudden the sobriety of this short life and the fact is that we're all going to die kind of gets a hold of people. That's really what John 16 is about when it says the Holy Spirit comes to convict us of sin, righteousness, and what? Judgment. The reality is that one of these days you and I are going to stand before God, and when we stand before God, he is not going to listen to our whining about our headaches. 
He's not going to listen to the things that we face. Are they small in this world? No. Do some of you hurt on a regular basis? Absolutely. We could absolutely fill the room with testimonies of people right here today who suffer deeply. And either God is going to have to apologize to you or he's inviting you and me in this moment. Help me see the shortness of my days. Help me see the brevity of my life. Help me see, God, how temporary everything is so that I might in this moment focus on that which is crucial and eternal. And God, secondly, help me see the end of shadow living. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. Man is, is, is just a phantom, he says in verse six. And he goes to and fro. He bustles about, he's busy, always busy. He's so busy doing so many things. But in the end, it's only vanity. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. Carrie went to an estate sale this week. Our rule of thumb is, is if you go to an estate sale, you're supposed to call the other person and let them know, you gotta go. And she knows what I like to buy. I mean, if they're, you know, selling things that I am interested in at a price that I don't wanna have to badger them too hard, she'll call me. She went to this estate sale and she was taken by the fact of all of the various pieces of glass and everything else that this family had acquired. When I asked about the price of it, I estimated that they were selling everything, pennies on the dollar. All of these things that this woman thought that were valuable and she'd amassed over the years was nothing but a millstone around her kids' necks that they had to do an estate sale. They probably didn't make enough money out of the estate sale to even pay the people who auctioned junk off. That's his point. It, it, he's not against acquiring things. David's not against buying things. But you, you come to the point, like Carrie and I realize that, you know what? When we bought this hutch that we put dishes in, when we bought it, they sold it to us like it's an heirloom. <laughs> it's really going to be probably burned on the family fire when we die. Because no one wants it. We periodically say to the kids, hey, do you want this? No. And what we've discovered is our kids hate everything that we have. <laughs> the only thing they want is my guns. They don't even want my horse. And, and that's not because they're bad. It's because they're smart. It's because... The reality is everything that you and I buy and we think, oh, this is so good and our kids are going to want it. And they go, please just sell it before you die. That's what he's come to grips with. God, help me see the end of shadow living. Why? Because if you don't, you're going to try and get out of this earth what is only going to be reserved for heaven. If you try and get all of the joy and all of the value and all of the point, then you're going to see every trial and every challenge as an affront to your passion to get heaven on earth. 
And we're not going to get it. We're not going to get heaven on earth. He's not against buying a home and having a boat and having a horse. He's not against that. He's just saying, if you don't gain perspective and you think that you can get heaven on earth, you're going to be deeply disappointed and you're going to see every challenge that you face as God's affront to your goal. Challenges require a humble, humble request. And when you do it, it leads to hope. It does. Challenges can bring hope to the humbled heart. How do I know this? Look at verse 7. But now, Lord, you've given me perspective. You've helped me see the shortness of my life. I went through the kitchen and realized I've amassed a whole bunch of stuff that my kids probably don't want. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. My hope is in you. What happens when we discover that the only place I'm ultimately going to get heaven is heaven? And until then, God, I trust you. I trust you with the good days, but I especially trust you with the challenging days. And and what does this path of hope look like? Number one, It's an invitation for God to search you. And to ask the question, God, is the challenge that I'm facing have anything to do with the discipline that you need to bring into my life? Now, we don't like to go there, and and I think it's fair. When a person has difficult times, probably it should not be your first move. What sin is going on in your life? That's what they did to Job. And I don't think that should be our first step with anyone. If you do that, the body of Christ becomes really kind of a painful place that every time some difficult thing happens, probably with me getting trampled by a horse, somebody's going to say, Mark, there's sin in your life. And I would say, observation number one, you're amazing. (laughs) If that's the first step we go, honestly, no one's going to be honest with you. But at some point, dear friends, You have to go where David did. God, save me from all my transgressions. Lord, if there's anything that's going on in my life right now, that you, my loving father, who loves me more than anything in the world, wants to discipline, wants to correct, and wants to to confront me because I'm trying to get heaven out of this earth. And if there's any sense that I am not living by faith, but I'm taking ownership of my life, and I'm determining where joy is going to come from, and I'm determining where happiness is going to come from, if any of that is happening, then God, I just surrender right now. And I want you to examine my heart. That needs to be some place that you go at some point. The first one, probably not. But at some point, you have to submit your heart to the evaluation of God. God, is the challenge that I'm facing right now have anything to do with the discipline that you need to bring in my life? Secondly, am I willing to submit and trust that even the challenges have come through the fingerprints and the hand of God? And I must accept them because I trust him. I was silent, verse 9 said. I would not open my mouth. Here's the reason why. For you are the one who has done this. I do trust you, Lord. 
I do recognize that the, the issues that I face today have come through the permission of your hand. The migraines that I live with are not outside the control of God. The inability to get pregnant, it's not outside of the control of God. I have to face that. I will open my heart to the Father and ask him if there's any discipline. But ultimately, the humble heart will say to the Lord, I will be silent. I will not come at you with an accusation. Why? Because I ultimately trust you. I will surrender and submit my heart to you because you're my only hope. There's nowhere else I can go. There's no one else that can treat this challenge. There's no one else that can touch the wayward heart of my son. I trust you. And when you get to that point, David then tells you, cry out to God. And he does in verse 12, and he says, God, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for help. Be not deaf to my weeping. But then interestingly in verse 13, there's this tension. Because he has said to God, God, would you come close to me? Would you get near to me? Would you hear me? And then he says, interestingly enough, in verse 13, God, look away from me. Don't look at me. I'm afraid of what you might find. It's a tension that you and I live in, and I want you to know that God has solved that tension. It's called the cross. It is at the cross where Christ has taken the, the absolute, complete knowledge of every sin you will ever commit, and he's put it up onto the cross, and he said, you do not need to be afraid of what I will find. I've covered under the blood of Christ. And so you have freedom this morning to cry out to God, God, I need your mercy, I need your help, I need you to walk me through this dark valley, this deep challenge, this rebellious son, this deep headache, this barren womb. But I don't need to go down that path being afraid of your searching me because you dealt with that at the cross. And therefore... These temporary hardships, they will humble me, but they will humble me to a place where I can place hope in you, not be afraid of you. They will humble me to the place that I can come and be honest with you and invite you, but not be afraid of what you're going to find. That father that went out for his son, he continued to go out. And every day he would look down the path to see if this might be the day that his son comes home. His neighbor would periodically come out and said, hey, what are you doing this to yourself for? Why are you beating yourself up? You have a good son at home. Go enjoy him. Quit worrying about that sleaze bag that took your money and left. He's gone. Let him go. You got a good son. Go celebrate And the protection of his heart periodically tempts him to do that. 
But in the end, he says no. Until I've read his obituary, there's hope. And the reason there's hope is because I will not give up on God. And so he marches himself out every day. He's quite aware that one day he might get the news that he died. He's quite aware that one day he might read the obituary and it's too late. But until then, I will hope because I will not give up on God. I don't know what it is that you're challenged. It may not be a physical thing that you're facing. I have a family member, actually a couple of them, one in particular that is causing me just a lot of anxious moments because her heart is not in good shape. Not with the Lord, her heart just is not working. And I feel every day this increased almost anxiety, but, but it's really more just burden in my heart for her. God, her days on this earth could be numbered very short. I know we're all like a vapor, but let me tell you what, her vapor is almost indistinguishable. But I pray, because I haven't read the obituary yet. And I hope, because I won't give up on God. And whatever it is that you're waiting for, it's worth it to wait with hope. It's risky. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's risky. But these hardships that you and I face, if you allow them to humble you before the mighty hand of God, Peter says he will lift you up. I hope that he relieves the physical pain that you face. I hope by God's kindness, he will make your barren womb receptive and alive with a child. But I hope most of all that you don't give up on God because he will never give up on you. Let's pray.